Let's go ahead and open up in prayer and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today just thanking you for bringing us through another week, for bringing us here to worship you, to study and fellowship with one another, but most importantly, to recognize who you are, to worship you, and to set aside this day as you apart from all the other days of the week and make it special, to make it holy, to sanctify it. Be with us during this class. I pray that you would help me to communicate your words and your heart through this message. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Okay, last week we talked about the four servant songs of Isaiah, and we took a close look at the first three. So don't have time this morning to go back and rehash. Typically when I do a teaching that it is online, if you didn't see it, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it deals with those first three servant songs of Isaiah. Today we're going to look at the fourth one. That one begins in chapter 52, verse 13. Even though we typically talk about Isaiah 53, we need to back up a few verses to 52, 13. And then the servant song goes all the way from that point through the end of chapter 53. And it is called the suffering servant song. And it builds on the previous three, and it tells us about a servant who suffers on behalf of the people to redeem them from their sins and their suffering. Although I don't have time to do a recap, there is one thing that's important enough that I want to go back and spend just a couple of minutes on it quickly. Isaiah 53 is often referred to as the forbidden chapter for a reason. Prior to Rashi, bring to the Messiah, we talked about that at length last week. But Rashi changed that interpretation and taught that it referred to the nation of Israel because he lived during a time when there was a very distorted form of Christianity being practiced that resulted in the persecution of the Jewish people. So he wanted to prevent his people from accepting this Messiah that was being linked to all this persecution and wanted to keep them away from Christianity, take that into consideration. Um, but other prominent Jewish rabbis and leaders realized the inconsistencies in his arguments and pointed those out, and we talked about those last week. So again, if you didn't, weren't here for that teaching or didn't hear it, please go back and look at it online, and you'll find out what those inconsistencies were. Now, with that as background, I want to go ahead and jump in to the fourth servant song. So we're just going to jump right into these scriptures and, and break them down and look at them. We're going to see if combined with what we discovered last week in the three previous servant songs, and this one this morning, if it supports our view that this suffering servant is indeed the Messiah, and if so, why that's important to us. And we'll also look and see if we can find some clues as to who this servant is and something that supports our view. I'm going to go back and use some of the resources I used for last week's teaching primarily. We'll be getting material from the line of Judah, how Jesus completes biblical Judaism and why Judaism and Christianity separated, which is by Rabbi Kurt A. Schneider. And if you haven't read that book, I would encourage it. It's a really good synopsis of how that whole split happened between the Jewish people and the Gentile believing community, as well as the non- But even though it's not that big of a book, it's amazing how deep it gets. And then there's Isaiah 53 Explained by Mitch Glazer, also an awesome book. And there'll be various websites and other materials. Uh, one of the websites I looked at is, is JewsForJesus.org. That's a really good site as well. So let's jump right in to the scripture. We're going to start, as I said, Isaiah 52, verse 13. 
and we're going to look at chapter 53, verse 1. So we're going to look at these few verses and talk about them for a few moments. Starting in 13. See how my servant will succeed. He will be raised up, exalted, highly honored, just as many were appalled at him because he was so disfigured that he didn't even seem human and simply no longer looked like a man. Because of him, kings will be speechless, for they will see what they had not been told. They will ponder things they had never heard. Who believes, and this is going into chapter 53, verse 1, who believes our report? To whom is the arm of Adonai revealed? What we see from these verses is that right away Isaiah raises the question of his question, who believes our report, is likely meant to alert us to the fact that many will not believe. So it did not surprise him. He then goes on and he informs us that the arm of the Lord, which could be either God's power as displayed through the Messiah, or it could be the Messiah himself as an extension of Adonai, was revealed to the people, yet obviously many did not believe. So think about that. If they had not believed, why would we be presented with this question of who believes our report? There would be no need to ask that question. And we see this is exactly what happened in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, when talking about Yeshua. That verse said, or those two verses says, he was in the world, the world came to be through him, yet the world did not know him. Homeland, yet his own people did not receive him. So we see that that was indeed fulfilled by Yeshua. Now let's continue. Let's go to verse 2 of chapter 53. For before him he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He was not well formed or especially handsome. We saw him. But his appearance did not appear that it's overly telling. But when you take a closer look, it reveals something that's very important to our discussion. It says, for before him, he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. So let's talk about who these two identities are. But first I want to talk about he grew up like a root out of dry ground. Okay, A root that springs out of dry ground is essentially worthless. If you've ever seen when we have a dry spell here, and you might see a little root come up, what happens to that root? If it's not nourished, it will die, because it takes moisture for that root to take hold and grow. So that root will almost certainly die and not produce anything. It will wither up and it will die. And what this tells us is that from an outward observation, to be the Messiah would not be believed by many since it appeared that he had failed at his mission. Instead of defeating the Romans and rescuing the people from Roman rule, he was crucified by them. Remember what happened to Yeshua, okay? It's exactly what happened when Yeshua came, so it fits right in with what we see in this verse. So him who? It's widely accepted by scholars that that first identity is God himself, so we won't spend any time going through that one. There's really no controversy on it. That second one, he grew up. Hmm. He grew up before God, so who was it that grew up before God? I want to talk about that one for a few minutes. In order to be in God's presence, one has to be righteous. 
because it's impossible for a sinful man to be in God's presence. Think back to Adam and Eve. They walked with God, but when they disobeyed and sin entered the world, what happened? They lost the privilege of being in God's presence. Then there was Yeshua. As he hung on that cross, he cried out that his father had forsaken him. It could have been no other way, because as we will talk about in a little bit, the world were laid on Yeshua. And God, because he cannot be in the presence of sin, he had to look away. So let's back to the servant. In order to grow up in God's presence, this mysterious he must be righteous, not part of the time, but all the time. And there has only been one perfect person who has ever walked this earth. And we all know who that is, Yeshua. Charismatic personality, his good looks, his popularity, or his great wealth. And if that passage is indeed describing Yeshua, who scripture tells us was the creator of all things, that nondescript characterization of him on earth is very interesting. Stop and think about it. I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. There was nothing appealing about him. He who created all the beauty that we see in this world was beautiful himself. Okay, when he was with the Father, he was beautiful. He was a beautiful, perfect creation. But he willingly chose to come down to this earth and close himself in mediocrity. That was his choice. As phrased in one translation, it said he came with no form or majesty that we should. In other words, he came as an ordinary person rather than as a charismatic superstar or a beautiful creation, which is exactly what he was. For that reason, some people were even offended by the mere suggestion that he could be the Messiah. We see that assertion validated in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 through 57, where we read about the reaction of the people in Yeshua's own hometown. Those verses read, isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Miriam and his brothers Yaakov, Yosef, Shimon, and Yehuda? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all this? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, the only place people don't respect a prophet is in his hometown and in his own house. Rabbi Schneider really summed this whole thing up beautifully in his one paragraph out of that book because it'll kind of put it in more modern terms for you to understand exactly what the reaction was to him. Who? That guy? He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. In fact, we know his mom and dad as well as the rest of the family. They're just like us, normal folk. You seriously think he's the Messiah? That's ridiculous. After all, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Hmm. It's just something to think about, huh? townspeople who had trouble believing that he was the Messiah. He was so ordinary that even his own brothers didn't believe until after his death and resurrection. But even more than the ordinary appearance he took on when he came to this earth, Isaiah 52 verse 14, going back a bit, tells us that his appearance later became so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men that many were astonished. Even more, scripture tells us that after Messiah's flogging, people were actually disgusted by the fleshly appearance of the God who is beauty itself. 
So let's look at verse 3. People despised and avoided him, a man of pains, well acquainted with illness, like someone from whom people turned their faces, he was despised. We did not value him. This servant here is depicted as being marginalized by society and misunderstood. Some people even laughed at his claims to be the Messiah. And I want to read another telling passage from Rabbi Schneider's book. It says, some mocked him openly. The Pharisees made up lies about him. They and the other religious leaders hated him so intensely from early on in his ministry that they continually plotted to murder him. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. So Yeshua was well acquainted with being despised, just as he was deeply familiar with sorrow and grief. Not only was he constantly misunderstood by the public, but his closest friends also seemed clueless as to what he was talking about most of the time. I like how he puts it in that book because it really brings it into modern times and makes it real. So let's take inventory of what we've discussed so far. Yeshua was scoffed at publicly. He experienced sorrow because many misunderstood him. How often do we really stop and think about that, how much it must have hurt him? We think about what he did but a lot of times we don't step back and really think how it must have impacted him personally. And he was rejected by members of his own family and even his closest friends. And even his disciples, who had followed him for three years and knew him better than anyone else, in his darkest hour, what happened? Some of them even abandoned him. Peter denied three times that he even knew him. His life truly mirrored the servant in Isaiah who was hated, rejected, despised, and abandoned. So verses 4 and 5. In fact, it was our diseases he bore, our pains from which he suffered, yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins, the disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. We learn from this passage that this person willingly suffered for the benefit of others. In fact, the purpose of his life was to bear humanity's sorrow and grief. So let's think about Yeshua. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we read that Yeshua bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 5.21 reveals that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Although sinless, Yeshua became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God and have fellowship with God. As he hung on that execution stake, those around him mocked him with some believing that he was actually being punished by God. Because according to Deuteronomy 21:23, anyone hanging on a tree was accursed of God. So he fulfilled that passage. We see that passage right here being fulfilled in Isaiah 53. We're told in Matthew 27:45 that Yeshua himself cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I mentioned a few moments ago. In verse 5, we see the physical torture that this servant endured. He also endured the horrific weight of our sins. 
If our assertion is correct, and this servant is Messiah Yeshua, then as God, he was perfect. So becoming sin must have been something so terrible that there are no words to describe it. That is why his father and the excruciating pain he suffered was because of our sin, not his, because he had none. Remember back to Yeshua's ministry on earth. During that time, supernatural healing was a foundational part of his ministry. He healed wherever he went. And today, people are still being healed as a result of the blood that flowed from his stripes. As it says in this verse 5, by his stripes we are healed. Yeshua offers healing for wounds of every kind, emotional, physical, and spiritual. Now, verse 6, we all that Yeshua took on himself all of our sins and guilt. So let's move on to verse 7. Though mistreated, he was submissive. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to be slaughtered, like a sheep silent before its shearers, began to accuse him, Yeshua, of many things. against you, charges. But he did not even raise his voice to object. How many of us would have remained silent in the face of such unfounded claims? I mean, be honest, would we sit by quietly or would we try to defend ourselves? But Yeshua refused to defend himself or even to set the record straight. He allowed the lies to hang out there and then he willingly accepted the verdict, death. He gave his life when he didn't have to. He could easily have cried out to his father and he would have sent a legion of angels. But instead, he made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could have eternal life. Verse 8. After forcible arrest and sentencing, he was taken away. And none of his generation protested. His being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserve the punishment themselves. Here we see that this servant was arrested and he was sentenced by people using force. Again, this is exactly what Yeshua did seven centuries later. He who knew no sin became sin and died in our place. Then we see verse 9. He was given a grave among the wicked. In his death he was with a rich man, although he had nothing had done no violence and had said nothing deceptive. We see here that he was given a grave among the wicked. So think back to Yeshua's death. Luke 23, starting in verse 32, tells us that the two other men, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to the place called the skull, they nailed him to a stake, and they nailed the criminals to stakes, one on the right, and one on the left. One of the criminals hanging there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one spoke up and rebuked the first, saying, Have you no fear of God? You're only getting the same punishment as he is. Ours is only fair. We're getting what we deserved for what we did. But this man did nothing wrong. Then he said, Yeshua, remember that you will be with me today in Gan Eden. But we also see 
in this verse 9 from Isaiah that this servant was with the rich man in his death. That also applies to Yeshua, as we just read. Matthew 27, 57 through 60 tells us this. Actually, I think I just misstated myself. We just read that he was with them in his death, okay, with criminals. Now we're going to talk about him being with the rich in his death. Did that happen to Yeshua? Okay. Matthew 27, 57 through 60 tells us this. Now, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had also become a disciple of Yeshua. This man went to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. Then Pilate ordered it to be given up. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. Then he rolled a large stone up to the door of the tomb, and he went away. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and visited the traditional garden tomb in Jerusalem, you've seen a tomb that's in a beautiful garden. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And you can kind of get a sense of what it might have been like there. Whether that was really the place or not, we're not going to get into that debate what a beautiful garden would have looked like. A man who was crucified, counted with criminals, then given burial in a rich man's grave. Think about it. That could only have been orchestrated by God. Rabbi Schneider adds some additional context to this verse, and I want to read that again. Like I said, it's a really good book. I would encourage you to, to read it if you haven't. The fact that Pilate commanded that Yeshua's body be handed over to Joseph shows something supernatural at work. The intervention of a Roman governor in a Jewish case such as this was highly unusual. I mean, we usually read this and just accept it. But think about that. The chances of that happening were pretty slim. Slim to none. Unless God. In addition, notice how scripture points out that Joseph used his own new matter says, I would argue it took divine intervention, which is yet further proof that Yeshua is the Messiah. Verse 10, yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering. If he does, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days. And at his hand, Adonai's desire will be accomplished. In this verse, we see that Adonai would crush this servant to see if he would indeed follow through with the plan that God had laid out. And in doing so, the servant subjected himself to these sufferings that we've talked about. And they were not a result of his own sins, but because he was taking on the sins of the world. And because by doing so, he would please Adonai. He saw that they were necessary, and he willingly accepted them. Adonai was pleased with those sufferings, not because Adonai has delight in the suffering of the innocent, not because the sufferer was in any sense guilty or ill-deserving, and not because he was at any time displeased or dissatisfied with what the servant had done or taught, but for the following reasons. First, because this servant had voluntarily submitted himself to those sorrows that were necessary to show the evil of sin, and with the knowledge that his obedience would purchase the eternal redemption of the people. 
Put another way, God was pleased that the servant would subject himself to such great sorrows to save the people. Second, because these sufferings would illustrate the divine perfection and show the justice and the mercy of God. The servant's sufferings on behalf of the guilty showed the holiness of his nature and his law. He demonstrated his willingness to save, but did so without dishonoring the commandments or downplaying the evil that had been done by sin. He became sin so that we could be cleansed and forgiven. And third, Adonai was pleased because these sorrows would result in the pardon and the recovery of an innumerable nurse and in their eternal happiness and salvation. The whole work was one of benevolence, and Adonai was pleased with it as a work of pure love. We also see in this verse a beautiful promise. By being obedient, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. The language here is taken from that which was regarded as the highest blessing among the Hebrews. With them, length of days and numerous descendants were regarded as the highest favors and usually as the clearest proofs of God's love. The servant is here promised that he will both see, see the length of days and his offsprings. He will see numerous spiritual posterity with emphasis on the word see, for it was regarded as a blessing not only to have posterity but to be Think back to the joy of the aged Jacob in being permitted to see the children of his son Joseph, who he had long thought dead, as recorded in Genesis 48, verse 11. Israel said to Joseph, I, have expected to, I had never expected to see you ever again, but God has allowed me to see your children too. The great multitudes who would be his spiritual children, though he would die, days would after this ordeal, he will see satisfaction by his knowing pain and sacrifice. My righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their Okay, so that alerts us to the fact that it is now God. It is Adonai who is speaking here. This is not Isaiah. Adonai proclaims that the servant will see the fruit or the result of his sufferings and be satisfied. He shall see so much good resulting from his great sorrows, so much happiness and so many saved, that the benefit shall be ample compensation for all that he endured. The word that we see here rendered as ordeal, that's used to denote to the arduous and wearisome labor and trial involved in the work of redemption. That was not a simple process. And it exhausted the powers of the servant as a man and sunk him down to the grave. It cost him his life. That's how difficult this whole process was. It caused his death. We then come to the sentence that states, by his knowing pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. In other words, because the servant willingly accepted suffering and pain, many, and that includes us, are made righteous. He suffers not because of anything he has done wrong, and I want to stress that again, but because of what we have done wrong, because of our sins.
And I want to clarify something here, saying that he became a sinner. There's a difference. He did not. He was never a sinner. He never committed any sin. But the consequences of our sins were transferred onto him, and he took that punishment that we should have received that was due to us. He took our punishment in our place. He stood between the stroke of justice and the sinner, and he received the blow himself. God requires death for sin. And the only righteous person who could justify us was his son, Yeshua. The cost was great for both of them. The father was separated from his son while Yeshua bore the iniquities of the world. Put another way, Yeshua would literally take on the world's sin. And by doing so, he satisfied the debt. So it wasn't that God was happy about the sufferings. The bill, or the debt, was paid by the servant's sacrifice. We see in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, that for while we were still helpless, at the right time the Messiah died on behalf of the ungodly people. Now it is a rare event when someone gives up his life even for the sake of somebody righteous. Although possibly for a good person, one might have the courage to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that the Messiah died on our behalf while we were still sinners. Therefore, since we have now come to be considered righteous by means of his bloody sacrificial death, how much more will we be delivered through him from the anger of God's judgment? For if we were reconciled with God, through his son's death when we were enemies, how much more will we be delivered by his life now that we are reconciled? Not only will we be delivered in the future, but we are boasting about God right now because he has acted through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, through whom we have already received that affiliation. Beautiful words. And now the last verse of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty, for himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. This verse predicts the triumph of this servant. The words are the same ones that would be used when distributing the spoils of victory after a battle. And the idea is that just as a conqueror takes valuable spoils, so the servant would succeed in a spiritual conquest world, and he would subdue it to himself. He will divide that spoil with the mighty or many. In other words, his victories will not be limited to only a few in number or to the feeble, but to the triumphs of his conquest would extend afar and be found among the potentates and the mighty people of the earth. And we see in Revelation 11:15 that when Yeshua returns, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord. He is the Messiah for everyone, poor, rich, regardless. And we see that this servant would willingly allow himself to be killed. As a reward for him having willingly done so, he will be granted triumphs over the whole world and subdue the mighty to himself. He will be counted among the sinners. He'll bear the sins of many. He'll be put to death with those who deserve to die because of their sins. This does not mean that he will be a transgressor or in any way guilty, but that his death will in fact 
that in his death he will in fact be numbered with the guilty and be put to death with them. We saw him. He was put to death with two criminals. Okay? And it's exactly, and we see another fulfillment here in the Brit Hadashah. Mark 15, 28, when it talks about Yeshua, it says, and the passage fulfilled which says, he was counted with transgressors. Now, there's our fulfillment. Not only does the servant pray or make supplication for sinners, but he also serves as our high priest, presenting the merit of his atoning blood before the throne of mercy and pleading for people. We see that fulfilled as well. In the Brit Hadashah, in Romans 8.34, it tells us, who punishes them? Certainly, and is at the right hand of God and is actually pleading on our behalf. And then Hebrews 7.25 adds the following, since he is alive that you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have Yeshua the Messiah, the Zadok, who pleads our cause with the Father. Was written, although some people claim, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So, first thing I want to talk about, Isaiah 53 actually foretells the life and death of Yeshua. While it is apparent that there has been no other person on earth and no collective body of men, including the nation of Israel, and we'll talk about that again, to whom this can be applied, it is obviously obvious that it does describes him perfectly. It relates to his appearance, his rejection, the manner of his death. He was pierced, even his burial. Although his scribes are so detailed, it appears as if it had been written afterwards. The manner of his rejection, the fact of him being taken from detention forcibly and by judicial sentence, the manner in which it was designed that he should be buried, and that he was interred in the manner in which the rich were buried. Some people claim Yeshua was an imposter and he intentionally attempted to fulfill this prophecy. Has anyone ever heard that one? Yeah, there are people who claim that, that oh, he intentionally did this. He, he wanted to be thought of as Messiah, so he tried to replicate. He went back and looked at these prophecies and tried to fulfill them on his own. Yeah, let's talk about that. The truth is that these heard if Yeshua had been an imposter. There are just too many things here that would have rendered any attempt of this, of this kind utterly hopeless. It could not have been done. For example, imposter would have no control over many of the circumstances that had to be fulfilled because they depended on the arrangements of divine providence, the hand of God, and on the voluntary actions of people in such a way that how could he so order it as to grow up as a root out of a dry ground, to be despised and rejected of men, to be taken from detention and from a judicial sentence, though innocent, to have it designed that he should be buried with malefactors, and to be numbered with transgressors, and yet to be rescued by a rich man and placed in his tomb. Think about that. Could you make all that happen even if you wanted to? Too much of that is out of anyone's control. Further, an imposter would almost certainly have tried to manipulate circumstances to align with the image of the Messiah that the Jewish people were expecting, the conquering king, in other words, rather than the suffering servant. If you wanted to come down 
and try to be the never would have attempted to fill, fulfill a prophecy by subjecting himself to such a shameful death. And even if he did, it would have been impossible. We just looked at what all took place. An imposter would have tried to demonstrate his power and his conquering ability rather than taking on these sufferings. The bottom line is that any such attempt could not have succeeded. The fact that the poems of Homer or Hesiod had an existence before the Christian era. In fact, they're as certain as the existence. In other words, this was written 700 years before. If you cannot be confident of that, you can't believe credible evidence, and we have to get into it, but there's so much evidence that these scriptures were written when we believe they were written. This was written 700 years before Yeshua was born. There is no, there's no doubt about that. Number four, Isaiah 53 proves that the Redeemer died as an atoning sacrifice for the people. He was not a mere martyr, and while he did come and live to, in order to set an example for us, his coming was for far more than just setting an example of how we should live. A mere martyr would not have borne our griefs or have been bruised for our iniquities as he was. Martyrdom is important, but what he did rises to such a much higher level than that. The servant stood as a medium. Likewise, Yeshua, the innocent, was punished for the guilty us, so that the, he, the guilty would be redeemed. I stand here telling you today, without doubt, that Yeshua is the Messiah prophesied in this passage, as well as throughout the scriptures in the Tanakh. Romans 8.34 reminds us that by being a mediator for us, being our high priest, he still intercedes from us, for us today, from the throne in heaven with his Father, as he stands there by God's right hand. Romans 8.34 tells us who punishes them. We looked at this a moment ago. Remind you of this. Certainly not the Messiah Yeshua who died, and more than that, has been raised half. That means when you and I fall short today, he's there pleading. He's making intercession for us. And it's because of his intercession that we can stand and be righteous before God. And it's through him and only him. It's nothing that we've done. He is our constant mediator before the Father. Mitch Glazer sums it up in his book, Isaiah 53, as follows. Says Isaiah 53 teaches that the servant endured all of the pain, standards, and expectations without taking into consideration those of the Creator. Because he, the servant, was rejected, we are accepted by God. Because he was alienated from God, we are drawn near to our Heavenly Father. Because he endured the guilt of moral failure, we are forgiven. Because he experienced intolerable pain, we can be healed. Because he bore our punishment, we will not be judged. And this reminds me of a passage in John 15, 13, where Yeshua stated, No one has greater love than a person who lays down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what this servant did in Isaiah 53. He sacrificed his life so that the people could be redeemed to God and have life. The servant died in the place of men 
women and children, both Jews and Gentiles, who had sinned and had offended a holy God so that they could be made right with their Heavenly Father. I do want to go back to something we talked about briefly last year, uh, last year, last week. We saw how for approximately 1,700 years after the writing of the book of Isaiah, the rabbis taught that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. We also discussed last week that there is the witness of books such as Zechariah and Daniel that tells us that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple. And that history confirms to us that happened in 70 AD. So that's old history. That happened many, many years ago, centuries ago. We took a look last week at Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9. And that was very specific in identifying the time during which the Messiah must be born in order to fulfill the prophecy. And if you weren't here for that teaching, you may want to go back and look at that video. There is something I want to add. As you know, we got started a little late last week. And I had to kind of rush at the end, so something kind of got lost that I didn't bring out that I do, it's important enough, I do want to go back to this and talk about it. We saw last week that Daniel 9 requires that the Messiah come and be cut off or executed before the end of the second set of seven years. Now remember, so seven times seven, 49 years, that's followed immediately by a second set of 62 sets of seven years for another 434 years, which gives us a total of 483 years. Now, so 483 years, the Messiah has to come somewhere and be executed before those 483 years expire. So how does that align with Yeshua's birth and his crucifixion? As we discussed last week, the countdown would have begun no later than 444 BC. So, 483 years would have been completed no longer than the year 39 A.D. That means that the Messiah would have had to arrive and be executed no longer than 39. Okay? To be honest, we don't know the exact year when Yeshua was born. But based on the date of Herod's death, scholars generally believe it was somewhere between the years of 6 to 3 B.C. We do know that Yeshua was approximately 30 years old when he began his ministry, and that ministry, people debate how long it lasts, is generally assumed to have been approximately three years. Some people say it was less than that, but I've heard nothing that says it was longer than three years, so let's use three years. So, if he was roughly 30 when he started his ministry, he ministered for three years, he's 33 years old when he was crucified. Most scholars place his crucifixion between the years 30 to 36 A.D. Daniel's prophecy indicates that he had to come and die before 39 A.D. So that timeline works. Okay, there's no dispute on that. Daniel also predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple after the death of the Messiah. That happened in 70 A.D. So again, another factor we didn't talk about last week is that after 70 AD, it would be virtually impossible to prove one's lineage because all of the geological records were destroyed when the Romans demolished the temple in Jerusalem. Since the Tanakh is very specific about the lineage and birthplace of the Messiah, that could only be proven prior to 70 AD. Again, further evidence that the Messiah had to come prior to the temple's destruction. As we saw this morning, Isaiah 53 tells us that he would be rejected by his own people. He would die and he would rise again. 
few chapters earlier, if you go back to Isaiah 49, you'll see that it was also revealed that the Gentiles would believe in this servant. I don't think I need to prove that one to you. Yeshua's definitely fulfilled that prophecy. Since the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the second temple in 70 AD, if you are not currently a believer, I want to ask you this. Was there anyone else in history other than Yeshua who was born and died prior to 70 AD who fulfilled the description that was portrayed by Isaiah of the suffering servant? No. The answer is no. There was no one else. Only Yeshua fulfilled it who believe this. In addition to millions of Gentiles today, at least 870,000, by current estimates, Jewish people worldwide also agree. And in reality, that number is probably much higher because many people, when they're surveyed, are hesitant to admit that they believe in Yeshua. If they're Jewish, they're very hesitant to admit that they believe in Yeshua because they're afraid of persecution. Yeshua fulfilled more than 400 direct prophecies about the Messiah. There's no one else who comes even close to fulfilling that many. In fact, the odds of someone doing that who was not the Messiah are too great to even estimate. It's impossible. I'm going to give you an example here. The renowned scientist Peter Stoner wrote an article about this very fact in Science Speaks. And this was published. When we talk about 400 prophecies, so what I want to point out is some of those are duplicates. They're mentioned more than once in scripture. Uh, when you take and you consolidate them all, it's, it's well over 100. But it's for prof there's prophecies in there 400 times in the scriptures. Okay, so let's look at these eight prophecies that he looked at. There's the place of the Messiah's birth. The fact that he was preceded by a messenger. How he was to enter Jerusalem. His betrayal by a friend. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The money would be thrown in God's house. He would be mute or silent before his accusers, and then he would be crucified. So they're all pretty common um, prophecies, the ones that we're all familiar with. Using the modern science of probability regarding those eight, just eight of those, Stoner concluded that we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight of these prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. Okay? That, that means the numeral one followed by 17 zeros. Just eight prophecies. To understand what that means, I want to put it in better perspective for you, if you took that many silver dollars, laid them down on the face of the state of Texas, and we all know how huge that state is, they would cover the entire state two feet deep. Now, mark just one of those silver dollars. Just one of them. Mark them. Put it in the pile. Stir it up so you don't know where it is. Then blindfold a man. Tell him to pick up one silver dollar anywhere in that pile over the entire state two feet deep. The odds that he would find that one coin to mention all the others. It's only possible if God is in it. I want to give you just a few examples of some of those fulfilled prophecies. Yeshua was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of Mary, the young Jewish virgin. Isaiah 7:14 tells us, therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. 
Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Beauty the word Amma that she used there and say it just means a young lady. What's miraculous about a young lady giving birth? Young ladies give birth all the time. And yes, the birth, birth, giving birth is a miracle. But it's not miraculous to this level. It wouldn't be a sign that that child is the Messiah. Otherwise, every, every, every son that's ever been born would be the Messiah, if that were the case. Now, this was special because the woman was a virgin. Although that does mean young woman, it can also mean virgin. Yeshua was born in Bethlehem. And we see that Micah 5.2, going to the Tanakh. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of there shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We also see prophecies of events such as John the Mercer who came to prepare the way, Yeshua's teaching to Jerusalem on a colt, which was another one of the prophecies. As we saw in Isaiah 53, his crucifixion was prophesied down to the smallest detail. Psalm 34.20 tells us about the miracle that would happen when none of his bones were broken. Psalm 22.18 reveals that the people would gamble to possess his clothing. Hmm, seems to me like that happened at the foot of the, the cross as well. Psalm Shua said when he committed his spirit into his father's hands. Psalm 31.5, okay, Tanakh. Isaiah 53.12 tells us that he would plead for the forgiveness of those who persecuted him. We talked about how he is our intercessor. He's our mediator. Amos 8.9 records the darkness that would follow his death. Yeshua fulfilled all of these and much more. So most assuredly, he is the promised Messiah of Israel and also of the Gentiles. Even with that knowledge, there are some people who still claim this passage is speaking about the name. I'm not going to repeat what I said last week. I want to add to that discussion, though. Servant in this passage. But the nation has continued to maintain a distinct national existence throughout the centuries, even when the name of the land was changed. There have always been a remnant of Jewish people in that land. Number four, the text points to the suffering of an individual, not a nation. In order to suggest it refers to a nation, one has to use major allegory. Additionally, the theme of redemptive suffering in rabbinic tradition is specifically focused on traditions related to the suffering of an individual called Messiah, son of Joseph. Fifth, the nation of Israel is the beneficiary of the servant's sacrifice. This verse may well be the prophet described the one who would suffer as being cut off from the land of the living for the crimes of my people who deserve the punishment themselves. As we previously talked about, the Hebrew term cut off, that's translated as cut off, actually refers to the death of an individual through execution. And it raises the question, how can the of Isaiah 53 cannot be Israel as a nation? Glazer summarizes this whole argument in his book, Isaiah 53, as follows. The interpretation that the servant is the corporate nation of Israel does not make any sense. After all, how could sinful Israel die on behalf of sinful Israel? It makes the words of the text illogical. This is why so many have come to the conclusion that the servant is the promised Messiah who will one day reign as king but must first fulfill this prophecy and die for our sins. So clearly, 
Isaiah has a person in mind here. It is not the nation of Israel or any nation. So perhaps now you can see why this chapter is so powerful. And I mentioned briefly last week the Apostle Philip even led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Messiah based on that one chapter alone. Forget all the other prophecies. Just look at Isaiah 53. They looked at that. He came to faith. But guess what? That's not the end of the story. After the event prophesied in Isaiah 53, Yeshua was resurrected and he ascended into heaven, where he is currently residing, awaiting the time when Adonai will send him back. In Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16, we read, For behold, Adonai will come in fire, and his chariot, 18 and 21, records his return this way. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one riding on it is called Faithful and True. And he judges and makes war in righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and many royal crowns are on his head. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may stride, and he treads the winepress of the furious wrath of Elohe Zavaot. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw a single angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He cried out to all the birds flying high in the sky, Come, gather for the great banquet of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of generals and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the flesh of those riding on them, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both great and small. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the one riding on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. Hmm, not a pretty picture. It will be both a grand and glorious day for those who know him, but it'll be the worst day in history for those who have rejected him. John states in Revelation 1-7 that, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn because of him. And this time, Joel 3, we're told that Yeshua, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who sits on the throne. Rabbi Schneider reminds us of this in his book, and I want to read one final passage from him. Since the Lion of Judah is roaring in heaven right now, his spirit is speaking forth in the earth as Yeshua is declaring, He who has a My prayer is that the church today will wake up and realize our kingdom identity, which will always be rooted in Israel. Yeshua is the Lion of Judah. He has not lost his Jewishness, but instead will forever be identified as a Jew. And he continues, I also pray for my fellow Jews around the world to have the blinders removed from their eyes regarding Yeshua HaMashiach and to see him for who he really is. He is the Lion of Judah who roars over Zion and who will forever be jealous over his chosen people, the Jews, end quote. Those of you who received Paul Wilbur's monthly letter may already know this, but this is really exciting. Very soon there will be a Hebrew in the Hebrew language. One of the major cable networks will be carrying the program. It's called Shalanu. And this is huge because up until now it has been illegal to preach the gospel in the Hebrew language on TV. So this is a change in law that we are seeing things happening. We are truly in the end times. We're getting ready to see a great harvest of souls. So 
bottom line is I've presented some solid evidence this morning from Scripture that the servant in all four of these songs is indeed the Messiah and that that Messiah is Yeshua. So if you're still struggling with whether Yeshua is the Messiah of Israel, I ask you to go back to your scriptures. Go back to the Tanakh. Study them without any bias on the influence that you've had in the past. Strip up and reveal the truth to you, and he will. For those who already believe, I want you to join me in praying that as God's word goes forth, it will bring in a harvest of souls for his kingdom. So let's close out in prayer now. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your revelation. We want to thank you for giving us these scriptures that tell us exactly what will happen. You reveal it to us, and we need to listen and pay attention. I pray, Father, for those whose word will seek down into their soul and that they will see the truth of who your Messiah is. And, Father, we pray for this new network, with this new programming that's going to go forward in Israel. Father, we ask for a harvest of souls. We pray that as people watch this program, and watch they will, we have seen how interested the, the unbelievers are in that nation as Messianic Jews have been on television. They've been interviewed, spent over and over again, Father. The people are curious. They're hungry. And we pray that this programming would reach them, both Jew and Arab, and bring them into your eternal kingdom. We thank you for all you've done. In Yeshua's name, amen.